Hello and welcome to another episode of Micromaterialism, where we break down a material science topic into a bite-sized chunk. I'm Jared Duffy, and today I'm joined by Permanent Ramsey. Oh yeah, this is the Permanent Ramsey you haven't experienced before. Yes, he just moved here for good this time, no more visiting, starting his PhD program, some real exciting stuff in the works. Now, of course, there is four of us in Utah, so we're still going to kind of try to keep it to that two to three sweet spot. So that when it's four of us, you know it's that special episode. We've done some failure micros recently. Obviously the Titanic one, the Comet. And so today we are going to do, I would say probably maybe the most well-known case of failure in American history. Put yourself back in time. Some of you are probably alive for this. This is the Challenger. So January 28th, 1986. A bunch of students are all crowded around a TV watching an elementary school teacher launch into space. Everything seems fine. And then at 50 seconds, they start to get adjust course. And then at 73 seconds, the entire thing blows up into a plume of smoke. Yeah, so this was widely promoted by Ronald Reagan. And it was kind of like this revival of the U.S. space program. Um, So it was a huge deal. And they even actually raffled off two seats for teachers throughout the country to see what teacher could come on board to give a lecture from space. So it was like something the world's never seen before. And you have a lot of competition in this time as well from the European agency. We're also in the midst of a Cold War. So a lot of factors leading up to this disaster that actually contributed to the final explosion of that space shuttle. How we've come full circle. We were doing raffles. For seats to go to space back then, we're doing raffles for seats to go to space now. Oh, yeah. And we actually do have a raffle coming up, uh, or actually a giveaway, not a raffle, for for Acers. Look at that tie-in. That is true. Keep an eye out. We will be doing a raffle soon for a small ceramics kit. Some exciting stuff. We'll touch a little more on that later. So the real question, of course, is what happened? And to understand that, you really have to go back a long way. As Ramsey said... Just because we landed on the moon doesn't mean that there still isn't competition for space. The big idea was always to make space less of an event and more of an everyday thing. And the best way to do that is to make something reusable. Because every single time you strap someone onto a Saturn V, that's a lot of money down the drain. So they needed something simple where they could also do tests like an orbiter. And so both Russia and America wanted an orbiter. And so in 1974, they began the contracting out for the space shuttle. Morton Thaikal ended up being awarded the contract to build the solid rocket boosters, and that is where all of the trouble began. Yeah. Their design of the solid rocket boosters actually was accepted by NASA in 1976, so two years after they were awarded the contract. Before we get into that, let's take a step back and actually explain what a solid rocket booster is. You've all seen a space shuttle before, and when you think of a space shuttle, you think of, you know, the white thing in space. And that is actually not the space shuttle. That is the orbiter vehicle. The space shuttle is the whole assembly. And so when you see the whole assembly on the ground, you have that big orange tank in the middle, and that's the liquid fuel tank. You have the orbital vehicle attached to it. And then on the side, you have the two solid rocket boosters. Yeah. You could think about the solid rocket boosters as basically two missiles attached to to the shuttle that's just going to launch it straight into space to pull through that gravitational force that's pulling down on the shuttle. So The reason they have these solid rocket boosters is they ignite them, and right as soon as it ignites, there is no controlling them. So it's just straight launching into space. And you hear the word solid, and just understand 
how just hefty these are. Each booster before it's ignited is two million pounds. Yeah. And they actually designed them to be reusable, which was pretty cool. Yeah, they were, you know, it's the first foray into reusable rockets. And the reason that the solid rockets are needed is they produce so much more thrust per pound than the liquid. And so they are used to launch up and then those drop off. And then you have the big liquid fuel tank and that drops off. And then by that, you're in space. We also do need to touch on a little bit of the history of the design because, you know, designs are always going to discover some issues. So let's talk about how they actually designed it. And they designed it in a way that maybe wasn't the best way for discovering issues because they chose a top-down approach. Explain that a little bit, Ramsey. Yeah, so they decided on a top-down approach, and that might have been because they had a ton of deadlines to meet, right? So it wasn't engineered the right way like you would engineer something from the bottom up. The top-down approach is basically putting this rocket together, this shuttle together, and hot-firing it and testing where the failures are from. But it's kind of hard to go back if you notice a failure because then you'd have to redesign certain aspects of the propulsion system, unlike when you're building from the bottom up, right? When you're building from the bottom up, you could test different materials and see how they hold up in certain environments, and then you could just swap out a material that's not working in that certain environment, unlike when you're building from the top down and everything's kind of assembled. While it was in its operation, before the Challenger accident, there was 25 flights. And so through both the design and the flight, they did find a few issues. The first being a problem with the joint rotation, which was ended up being solved and resubmitted the new design. In terms of the O-ring, in 81, after the second shuttle flight, they found that there was an issue in the O-ring and that there was a little bit of erosion. And at the time, there was obviously a problem and it was something they were working on fixing. However, in 85, the Space Shuttle Discovery, when they went to get their solid rocket boosters back and look at the erosion on the O-ring, it was the worst they'd ever seen. And so that's when they created a bit of a bigger rush on this, and they had a special task force actually working on fixing this. Now we get to the day before the launch, and this is where everything starts to go a little sour. Yeah, the eve of the launch is when you have the most drama. So you have this um, meteorologist from Florida phone in and kind of give advice to NASA about the weathers for the day of the launch. So he said it's going to be extremely cold. He also mentioned that there was jet streams above central Florida where the launch was going to happen. And jet streams are high shear winds that can definitely affect the performance of your propulsion system, right? All of this gets presented in the meeting between all the people who have a say in this. And Morton Thaykel decides that their official recommendation, based on what they know about the O-ring not operating in cold temperatures well, and this being a January launch flight, that they should not do this flight. And it, it doesn't go over well. So what happens is, head of NASA at the time, Lawrence Malloy, goes, what do you guys want me to do? Wait till April to launch? So it's clear that there's some animosity. They kind of go back into a second deliberation and... The most senior member of Morton Thaikos at that meeting says, guys, you need to understand that we're not making an engineering decision anymore. We're making a management decision. He says the quote, which is take off your engineering hat and put on your management hat. Yeah. So in that call, the engineering team for Morton Thaikos recommended that they don't go ahead with the launch because there was concern about the erosion of the O-rings. And not only that, the temperatures at this point, um, the day of the launch are going to be below zero. And we know that when you take rubber below zero, you're going to end up having a a glass transition where the rubber becomes 
uh, super stiff and doesn't have that elastic feature we know and see at room temperature. So now when you have this rocket engine vibrating in this extreme environment where it's vibrating, you need that O-ring to maintain that shape and, and kind of shift around and keep that seal on that joint. Especially when you consider that the boosters themselves are actually designed to be able to adjust the nozzles so that they can constantly keep the course they need for escape velocity and escape trajectory. So all said is done. The engineers do finally crack and they say, okay, fine. The launch is okay. And so they give the full permission for the launch. And after this, we get you introduced to, if you will, the kind of the three heroes of whenever you hear the investigation, the people they talk about. So the first one is Alan McDonald, and he is the director of the Mornthai Call Space Shuttle Rocket Project. And when they do kind of reconvene, despite the fact that in the end the answer was okay, he refused to sign the document, and he was not okay with it because he thought that in the end of the day, it just wasn't worth taking the risk. That's right. Yeah, he refused to, to sign off on the recommendation allowing for flight to take, uh, to take place. And then he actually had pressure from his manager who was like, well, if you're not going to sign off on, on it, I'm going to have to go ahead and sign off on it. And he, Alan McDonald's like, yeah, I'm definitely not signing off on that. You could go ahead and put your name on that paper. Because NASA requested in writing that somebody yeah. from Morton Thicol to sign off on it. And then the other two are Bob Ebeline and Roger, I think it's Bougelet or Boislet. And so they both worked on the project of the O-rings together. And there's a quote that Bob says where he goes home that day. He tells his wife that tomorrow it's going to blow up. And so they actually end up watching this the launch together. Apparently, they're, they're kind of joyed when they see it launch because they thought it was going to blow up sitting there. Yeah, they thought it blow up was going to happen right at liftoff. If yeah. it was going to fail, it was going to fail at liftoff. What they didn't notice was when it was launching, there was a little bit of smoke that just came out of it. Oh, yeah. So there was this like grayish, blackish cloud of smoke at about about 0.6 seconds coming out of that joint um, in the in the solid rocket booster. And nobody really noticed it because it was kind of fast, and then it stopped. And the reason it had stopped was because when that first O-ring failed and then the second O-ring went, there was actually a creation of a little seal. And this seal was because the aluminum perchlorate, which is what the fuel is, oxidized and became aluminum oxide, and it formed what is known as a ceramic seal right where it needed to be sealed. And so there was no issue. So when it was launched, it was fine. The problem was, though, is once it encountered those jet streams, the joints have to move, like I said, because it needs to be readjusted to the escape trajectory. And when that moved, that seal broke, and that led to the whole entire disaster. Yeah, so what you had was the the, the rocket engine trying to get back on trajectory, and you have nozzles at the bottom of these uh, solid rocket boosters trying to adjust back to the proper trajectory. So when that's happening, you have a lot of vibration. So what we know from ceramics, they're extremely brittle. So when you have this constant vibration, you have that ceramic seal that was that was created during the launch break off and you have this fiery gas coming out, which ends up piercing the liquid fuel tank, which then you kind of see this like huge explosion occur. But it wasn't mainly from the explosion, right? So you had these high shear winds from the jet stream pushing apart now this basically half open liquid fuel tank. And that's when you see it 
break off and these solid rocket boosters just kind of launching in different directions and you have that liquid fuel tank just completely shatter. Even though the launch probably shouldn't have happened, the cold temperature wasn't the kiss of death. It was those winds because like Ramsey said, with the vibrations of moving, if it wasn't for those nozzles having to move, they would have been fine. And that was at 53 seconds that everything went bad because if they had made it just an extra minute, all they needed to do was hit 127 seconds and then you drop the solid rockets. If they had just made it that far, everything would have been fine and nothing would have gone wrong. That's right. Yeah, the first stage would just let go of those solid rocket boosters. They they fall and you're now in second and stage with that fuel tank. on top of that, they would have recovered those solid rocket boosters, seen what happened, and then they would have known and they would have actually put more work into trying to fix it. But it's hindsight's 2020. It's too late. Yeah, and but this this actually brings up a, a, a great point, right, in engineering ethics, right? You can't, as an engineer, you're responsible for maintaining safety, and management should respect that, right, when it comes to engineering decisions like this, right, where lives are, like, you know, put on the... Put on the yeah, this is really, this is the example where it's kind of that management and engineering is a balance that needs to be kept, and when one side has too much power, nothing can get done properly. And you're really going to begin to see this as we jump into the final part, which is the investigation and what occurred that we haven't mentioned yet. Oh, yeah. Some drama. So, obviously, this is a big deal. So, the government forms the Rogers Commission. And if you have a second and you want to see some cool people, you just read through the Rogers Commission. Neil Armstrong, Sally Ride, theoretical physicist, the guy who broke the sound barrier. Like, this is a group of, like, the top of the top people yeah, when you, it comes to space. Oh, yeah. You have Richard Feynman, also a huge critic of what was going on at the time in NASA and just basically, you know, went in on them and said they were just all negligent for what was going on. Let's talk about the three people we mentioned earlier and their discussions in regards to this investigation. First, they have Alan McDonald, who we said would refuse to sign off. And this is what's crazy. When he testified in front of Congress, he was fired. Yeah, well, he was actually demoted to scheduling. So they'd send him, like, you know, yeah. imagine a top engineer in charge yeah. of a space uh, a solid rocket booster going yeah. and just demoted down to... Uh, Head of everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, HR. Yeah, Literally, though, I mean, you know, in the end of the day, he did come back. Oh, big time. He came yeah. back with a bang, too, which well-deserved. Yeah, he was the guy who... We will post his image, uh, and it helped with redesigning the whole entire nozzle. And I'll tell you what, if you look at what we're looking at right now, and you see the part count from the old one to the new one, it triples. Yep. Some good engineering, for sure. And then you have the guy I talked about earlier, Bob Ebeling. And he, so he was the one who said that it was going to blow up, and this is where it gets crazy. He, Like I said, he, he was on the commission to fix the O-ring, and he texted his head boss with a memo that's pretty famous, that just says help because he knew that they did not have enough funds and enough anything really to get this job done before the challenger was going to launch. And he thought that there was a big concern and he was kind of written off. Yeah. I think it was what, 1985 yeah, when this was going on. It was late 85. And yeah. And they, they saw a lot of erosion originally in these O-rings. So there was a lot of concern. Mm -hmm. And then there's also Roger Bosley who kind of the same thing. he, went out and he spoke a lot about it. And he was someone who felt, it's it's sad because they bo both, all of them felt really like they were at fault. And this entire time they had this guilt that they were the ones who did wrong. And for a while they were kind of vilified a little bit because they thought that they were the people who did the wrong thing. 
especially Alan McDonald, like we said, he was demoted. He was really given a lot of the blame originally. And it just it's so sad to see them taken to such a low point before NASA kind of comes through and shows that, you know, they were at fault. And speaking of NASA being at fault, there is Lawrence Malloy, the guy who said that it didn't matter. They're not going to wait till April. He got sued for $15 million by one of the widows, and he wow. filed his early retirement. Uh, so there was something, uh, a famous thing that Richard Feynman actually did at this committee meeting. And like I said, he was a huge critic of what was going on because he was like, this is just complete negligence of, uh, you know, all the signs of people and engineers telling you like, hey, this is not a good idea to launch. You know, there's jet streams, the, the temperature is below zero. So he demonstrated he took a cup of very cold water or ice water and put a piece of rubber in the ice water in front of the committee and took it back out and was like, this is why, you know, this is why we, we see the failure, right? You have this rubber that's not maintaining its elasticity at these temperatures, right? You have it just now being completely stiff. So why was this not kind of brought up before? It's It truly is one of those things where it, it showed that we've, well, we, you know, we've, we've made a lot of mistakes. And it also, it's funny because it does kind of tie back into the comment, which is what Ramsey's explaining, where they saw this issue multiple times, just like in the comment. They saw these planes explode and they just, they kind of backburnered it. because like, oh, you know, something else, who knows? Yeah, in, in the report, I read some of the report and you had kind of this idea of, well, if it worked before, it's going to work again, you know, we've, but you forget how complex these systems are, right? Like you're launching a huge payload into space, you know, with all these different types of temperatures, um, you know, uh, vibrations. I mean, it's a huge task and to, you know, at, at the, you just were, any negligence is, is a huge problem. You were strapping two ICBMs, one large rocket, to a glorified airplane. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, basically. It was, it was a dangerous task overall. Yeah. Well, hopefully this, this gives you some pause for thought, and especially I'm sure a lot of you have studied this in ethics, engineering ethics. I did literally a whole 12-page essay on this, so I'm sure that a lot of people know this, but hopefully you learned something new, and hopefully it gives you some food for thought about our role in designing and creating things. Well, that about wraps up this episode. I want to give a big thanks to all our sponsors. First, thank you to MatMatch. They're a great company, and they're very passionate about material science, and their goal is to help connect materials engineers with providers and suppliers of materials. Their platform is used by over a million engineers every year. It's completely free, and I got to say, overall, it's just a really easy-to-use, simple platform. I design test fixtures at an internship, and anytime I need to know the property of a material, you can always see me there just going on MapMatch and Googling the steel or whatever it is and seeing their properties. So it's very useful. This is also sponsored by Materials Today. Visit materialstoday.com to stay up to date on the latest happenings in the material science field and read some of the fantastic articles they've published. I'm sure that they have plenty of articles on the Challenger considering how big of a deal this is. You can head over to elsevier.com to find more about their journals, books, conferences, and related programs. We'd also like to direct a little bit of attention to ACERS I know we mentioned that we will be giving away one of their kits later, but also if you are a teacher or maybe you know a teacher who is passionate about teaching the kids about many different things and you wish that you learned about material science at a younger age, direct them towards ACERS because ACERS is actually giving away those kits free to teachers so that they can help get the message of ceramics and stuff out there. And if you look, it's a, it's a pretty cool kit. There's a lot of little things going on for showing off 
you know, just good demos and stuff. So I think that it's pretty worth it, and I think it's really cool that they're doing that and helping out uh, teachers like that. So thank you so much. Uh, finally, just want to give a big thank you to you guys for listening. Uh, if you haven't, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, all that stuff. We could definitely use the help. Yeah, especially make sure to call out uh, either me or Ramsey and just say that they're we're better than the others. Uh, <laughs> it's great. helps us a lot. makes me feel good, too. If you have any questions or you want to get in contact, uh, tell us how wrong we are about something or tell us how right we are about something, you can either send us an email at materialism.podcast at gmail.com or you can head over to the Instagram, which I usually take care of and do most of the stuff there, so you're kind of stuck with me. I apologize. And that is also materialism.podcast. We also just want to give a huge thanks to the people who make our music, Alphabot Colobite. Thank you so much. We love the work you do. And we will see you guys next time. Thanks for listening, guys.